Augustine said that justice is love ruling rightly. And I think that that's right. It's justice is how we love in the, in the field of governance. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And today we're going to talk with Matthew Martins about a Christian approach to criminal justice. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. In today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about one of mine and Dr. Keithley's favorites, sports. Man, I love the fall. I mean, in many ways, the fall is peak sports season. I mean, you have the NFL, college football. They're all in the midst of their seasons. Uh, the NBA, hockey, they're underway. And the Texas Rangers have just won their first ever World Series. Dr. Quinn, talk to us about sports, faith, and its impact on community. Thanks, Dr. Keithley. First of all, let's just underscore the wonderful nature of the fall. This is the best time of the year, without question. If we can go from September to Christmas, if that could be like, I don't know, three-fourths of the year, that would be delightful. The colors, I would vote in the favor smells, of the colors, the smells, just all that goes with it. Uh, you mentioned a handful of the sports that are underway or have wrapped up. So the Rangers have just won the first ever World Series in franchise history, taking over the Arizona Diamondbacks. As well, we're in the midst of, if you're in more local sports, um, high school football is in playoff season. So there's, at least where I live, there are a couple of teams that are in the thick of that. Others who are licking their wounds because they thought they would be there and they're not. NBA has kicked off. And this year they actually are having the first ever in-season tournament. So it's something, it's, it's a tournament at the beginning of the year that counts towards real wins and losses. Although it's not actually any official type of championship, they're just seeing how this will go. Hockey has started, but who cares about hockey? I don't know what's going on with soccer and NASCAR wrapped up uh, just recently as well. So it's all kinds of fun stuff. But here's the, the thing I want to focus on, as well as NFL, of course, is taking place. Here's what I want to focus on. At its very best, among all the things that sports can compete with, no pun intended, but all the things that sports can compete with, with respect to a Christian worldview, all the idolatrous things, all the vice that it can promote, promote there's also a lot of virtue that is, I think, intrinsic to the very nature of sport. I have a graduate student. Just today, I was reading his THM project. He's finished up. He's submitting where he's written on a theology of sport. And one of the things that he argues for following Jeremy Treat, who we've had on our podcast before, is that there is intrinsic value, intrinsic goodness in sports. And one of those things is how it can impact communities. And this is I just want to focus on this for, for just a minute. Think about the Rangers for a second. Uh, very soon they will have they're in Arlington. They will have a great parade celebrating what's happened now with the Texas Rangers. They have won their very first ever World Series. And think about how it impacts that community. This group of people, people from all up and down the socioeconomic spectrum and ladder, they will come together to celebrate this very thing that they feel like 
they had some part in the win of this World Series. Now, the vast majority of them had nothing to do, actually, with the World Series, but it brings communities together in, in kind of mass ways like that. But then even more at micro levels as well. Think about uh, high school football or even Nathaniel and I talked about this earlier in our season about some of the shaking up of um, um, the, the conferences in uh, college football, how by shaking up these traditional conferences, you're actually dislocating some of these teams from having as much of a local presence. When you've got teams associated with what had formerly been maybe Northwest conferences, and now they're associated with Midwest or Southeastern conferences, it begins to kind of dislocate some of this community. I think there's actually a great value in the fact that with respect to sports, it's not merely what takes place between the lines that has value to it, even though there's a lot of virtue and value there. It also does something to the community, the community of the team, and even the regional and local communities that it affects as well. I think we want to hold on to that. We want to remember that. What we've seen with the Texas Rangers is a good example of that. Yeah. And to your point, like most human endeavors, they have elements that are both good and bad, and that we have a responsibility as Christians to point out the problems with that which is uh, which is wrong and which is bad, and uh, to act redemptively to, imp- to help uh, promote those areas that are good. And sports has so much that has a positive, formative feature to it, both for, for the participants uh, and the audience. The last time the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series, as you know, was against the Texas Rangers. And that game in 2011, in which the Cardinals came from behind, not once, not twice, but three times uh, to win, there's a lot of lessons being taught there. Uh, And then for the Rangers to persevere and come back and a decade later to finally win it themselves, it has something to say about perseverance. And so to your point, we do need to recognize and take advantage of all that which is good and virtuous in the sports world. And with respect to community, I think it's it's just important to recognize we don't we don't merely stop this conversation, I don't think, with just generic kind of community that can be associated or gathered around a particular team. As fun as that may be, let's think about what it's actually signaling to us. So you imagine, I don't know why I always think of the Raiders games, because the Raiders seem to have the most raucous fans on the planet. They paint themselves up. They have these crazy costumes, whether it's close to Halloween or not. This is just called a Raiders game, right? Yeah. And these people gather around these things, and they seem to probably have little more in common than the fact that they root for the same team. But what is that pointing us to? It seems to suggest to us, or at least a reminder to us, that you know, we're actually made for community. We're made to gather around and be unified around certain things. And it especially from a Christian perspective suggests to us, what is there greater to rally around? What is there greater to have community around than the very person of Jesus? And I think it's just a helpful signal to us that, you know, maybe we're actually designed and created for community. We can even taste a little bit of the goodness and the fun and beauty of that kind of community around things like sports. And I think sports is good for community. But at the same time, there's a greater and deeper community, especially known as the family of God. Amen. Amen. So congratulations to the Texas Rangers. We we are thrilled that you won the World Series. And from my personal perspective, I'm also glad you beat the Astros. <laughs> Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. 
On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu give. This year, our season-long theme is Challenges to Humanity. One of those challenges is civic engagement. So today, let's talk about criminal justice, specifically why it might need reforming. To discuss this today, we're glad to welcome to the podcast Matthew Martins. He is a trial lawyer and partner at an international law firm in Washington, D.C., has spent the bulk of his more than 25-year legal career practicing criminal law, both as a federal prosecutor and as a defense attorney. Matt, I'm already nervous just introducing you here. I'm afraid you're going to find something on me. He's the author of a new book we're going to discuss today called Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Matt, so glad to have you with us. Would you tell us your faith journey? Tell us your story. How did you become a Christian? How long have you been a lawyer? We sort of said that in the introduction. And uh, what kind of experiences have you had as a believer who is serving the Lord in the legal field? Well, I have been a Christian, I say, for as long as I can remember, (laughs) meaning I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a Baptist pastor in New Jersey, and I heard the gospel from a very young age. You know, if someone asked me to pinpoint, I guess, the, you know, the moment in which I prayed, I was in kindergarten and, and I was baptized two days later uh, in March of 1978. And so have, it's hard to believe been a Christian for over 46 years, uh, at least. I, as I said, grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian college, Cedarville, then went to the University of North Carolina for law school. And I've been blessed to have done a lot of different things in the law. I was a law clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist at the Supreme Court. I was a defense lawyer. Then I was a federal prosecutor. I actually worked in the Bush administration in a political appointment role um, and then was a line prosecutor for nearly eight years, prosecuting pretty much any type of case you can imagine from white collar crime to violent crime, you know, murder to mail fraud, and then have been back in private practice now for just coming up on 10 years uh, now on the defense side uh, of the criminal law. So I've seen people at their best and at their worst, I guess. And along the way, I've had to think about what does it mean to be a lawyer who is a Christian? What are the obligations on me? as a follower of Jesus, who is practicing law. And in some ways, I guess a lot of the things I wrote in my book, I wish I would have known a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to do is pass on 25 plus years of thinking about that question about being a lawyer who is a Christian or being a Christian who is a lawyer and trying to pass that on to young people who are thinking of being a lawyer or maybe people who are lawyers or people who work in other aspects of government to think about what it means to do God's justice. Uh, I Mm. ultimately believe based on Romans 13, that all authority is delegated authority. And so if you're exercising authority, whether as a prosecutor or as a pastor or as a father or, or in any number of uh, ways we can exercise authority. We're exercising delegated authority on loan from God, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to think about what that means and what those obligations are. And that's really what I've thought about, particularly with regard to being a lawyer for 25 years. And I guess that this book is the culmination or the 
latest episode, maybe in that thinking. Matt, you may get into this some um, in in the book, but tell us a bit about why you got into law in the first place. You mentioned that your dad was a pastor. You told me before we got on air that you went to seminary yourself. So tell me, tell me just what was it that grabbed your heart about law and why you went that direction? You know, it's one of those things where if I look back and I try to figure out how I became a lawyer, I really can't remember. <laughs> I was a I was a science and math uh, person much more than a reading and writing person growing up, and I had wanted, as I remember as a teenager in high school, wanted to go to medical school. And yet I can remember clearly somehow that had shifted in my thinking somewhere in early college years um, that I was, I was interested in law. And now I spend my days uh, speaking, reading and writing. And uh, those were probably the things I was least interested in as a, as a, a young student, and even in college, it really, at least for a while, weren't my interests, but I've uh, really come to love them. So it's one of those things where it's kind of lost to the mists of time, I guess, uh, 35 some years ago, how I changed my mind, but I did. So you've clearly given a great deal of thought to this. What does a biblical framework for criminal justice look like? Well, I start with what Jesus uh, said in Luke 10 that our obligation is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. It's interesting. I believe that phrase to love our neighbor as ourselves is the most repeated phrase in the Bible, appearing eight times. Jesus says that those two commands sum up all the law and the prophets. So if you want to think about what God's law requires, back to my point about us operating a delegated authority, if you want to talk about what his law requires, his law requires that we love neighbor. And it's interesting, the first time that command to love our neighbor as ourself appears is in Leviticus 19, in a paragraph that begins, do no injustice in court, and mm. then goes on to say, but love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the command to love our neighbor as ourself was originally rooted in a legal obligation, a judicial obligation about how we would treat other people. And so I think fundamentally, to do justice is to love our neighbors. To do justice is to seek, is just one way in which we will and seek the good of another. Augustine said that justice is love ruling rightly. And I think that that's right. It's justice is how we love in the, in the field of governance. And so that then raises the question, okay, so what does it mean to, to love in a legal context? What does it mean to love in a governance context? And I think most fundamentally, it means to judge accurately. Now, I think there's, there's ramifications of that, but most fundamentally, it means to judge accurately, to judge truly, meaning to rightly separate right from wrong, and then rightly separate the wrongdoer from the non-wrongdoer. In other words, you first have to have a law that is just, that rightly defines what is right and what is wrong. And then you have to rightly determine, accurately determine who has done right and who has done wrong, who has been victimized and who has been the victimizer. And, and that is a challenge for us as fallible people because we don't have time machines. We don't read minds. We can't see through walls. Uh, and so the way we're going to judge rightly is through a process, we call it due process, but it's a process that's designed to surface and test the evidence so that someone can then make a decision about what happened. And so, so the connected to uh, the idea of judging rightly is a commitment to a process that allows us to do that. I think there's also other implications of that obligation to judge 
accurately, to judge truly, to judge rightly is among other than among others, we have to be impartial because partiality is judging people based on personalities rather than based on their conduct. And so partiality is a violation of the principle of accuracy. And proportionality in sentencing is once we've determined who did right or wrong, we have to speak to how wrong they were. Not every wrong is the same. Murder is not the same as jaywalking. And so proportionality allows us to speak accurately about the severity of the wrong done. And then lastly, the concept of accountability is holding the government to account, speaking accurately about the government when the government acts unjustly in its governance, in its judging. So I think fundamentally that package right there of accuracy is the fundamental concept of biblical justice. It's accomplished by due process. It's protected by impartiality. It's accomplished by proportionality and sentencing. And then there's accountability for those who fail to judge accurately. So as we've noted, you have seen the system from the inside out on both sides of the aisle. Uh, In your opinion, uh, how does the American criminal justice system measure up to uh, the biblical ideal? Well, in many ways, uh, it does it fantastically. Our criminal justice system is in a very literal sense revolutionary. We fought a war over it. People often think of the Revolutionary War as about tea taxes, and and sure, it was in part about that. But if you read the Declaration of Independence, the the colonists were upset about things like the lack of jury trials or a lack of an uh, independent judiciary. And so our country really was founded in many ways on some revolutionary concepts designed to achieve justice, from the right to the jury trial, as I mentioned, to an independent judicial branch, to lawyers for the poor who couldn't afford them, the right to cross-examine witnesses, the right to call witnesses. And, you know, we take those things all for granted now as basic elements of justice, but that was not necessarily the standard around the world. And so in many respects, our constitution reflects a commitment to concepts that are in alignment with biblical justice. But I think the real- I bet bet there's a but in your sentences. There is a but. There is a but, (laughs) which is that we don't live up to our ideals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's really what I write about in the book is the way in which we have expressed a commitment to principles designed to accomplish justice. We've expressed a commitment to due process, but we're not living up to that commitment. And there's lots of examples that I can and do provide about that. But I think that's the fundamental breakdown is that our system is designed well, uh, but it's not implemented in a way that's consistent with, with with God's ideal. Matt, can you give us some examples on that? I think I have specifically in mind maybe things like plea bargains or the death penalty. Can you just drill down on a couple of areas where you feel like uh, the American criminal justice system falls short of Christian justice in your mind? Yeah. So l- let me give one example. If I told you, I, I always, I try to use this, this illustration. If I told you that there was a particular justice system that would only convict based on proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you might think, hey, well, that's that sounds pretty good. That's a just system. That sounds like a system that's designed to achieve accuracy. But then if I told you, well, we're going to have a professional a trained lawyer on one side of the case prosecuting the crime, but we're not going to give you a lawyer to defend yourself. You'd be like, well, well, wait a minute. Like, you know, that sounds like that's going to run counter to the, the goal of achieving accuracy. And yet for until 1963, 
um, in a case called Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court had never held that the poor were universally entitled to representations by lawyers if they could not afford a lawyer. And you might say, well, good, that glad we got that straightened out in 1963, but this is the 60th anniversary of that decision in Gideon. And yet, as we stand here today, around the country every day, we fail miserably at living up to the promise of Gideon, that we, mm. we, we provide an inadequate number of lawyers to even competently handle the number of cases prosecuted against the poor. Mm. And study after study has shown this in state after state. It's not regionally concentrated. There's been studies in Rhode Island, New Mexico, Missouri, Louisiana, you know, around the country. And the findings are consistent, which is that there are about one third the lawyers necessary to represent poor people charged with crimes. Louisiana is one of the first worst offenders in that respect. There's been stories of, of a single lawyer handling 19,000 cases a year. If you just do the math and assume 2,000 working hours a year, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that leaves about seven minutes per case. And other egregious examples you know, that I could rattle off in that respect. And so I think that's one example where we've expressed a commitment in our constitution to a process to providing the poor with lawyers so that the, the, as I said, due process can be achieved so that the relevant evidence can be surfaced and tested. And if you don't provide one side with a, the lawyer, even though you've expressed a commitment to that in the Constitution, if you don't practically do that, it's going to undermine accuracy. You're going to end up getting uh, inaccurate results because really one side's fighting an unfair fight. I'm mm -hmm. still trying to get my head around 19,000 cases assigned to just one lawyer. I'm trying to understand what kind of system could even allow that to happen? That, that's, that's rather mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, Louisiana has been a particularly bad offender. Uh, not that any state has, has wrapped itself in glory on this issue. Uh, because there's not actually, if you think about it, there's no real political mileage for anybody running on a platform of I'm going to get more lawyers for criminal defendants. And so it's one of those areas where it really has no protectors in the system. But, you know, Louisiana, there was a, the, a federal court in Louisiana observed that there was, for example, one lawyer who had a major trial scheduled for every day of the year. And as the, as the judge said, no lawyer can try a case every day, not even a lawyer with an S on his chest, as the court put it. Because uh, if you're trying a case every day, you don't have any time to prepare for the next case. And, and so the, they, there becomes a situation where the lawyers, the defense lawyers, not for lack of competence or skill, but just for lack of time are overwhelmed. You know, you see anytime there's a, a criminal scandal of some sort in the country, you see a push for we need to add more police, we need to add more prosecutors. But if you don't simultaneously add more defense lawyers, you're necessarily stacking the deck and depriving people who are accused of, the, of a meaningful opportunity to, to defend themselves. And, and so just to, to play that out, if you have 19,000 cases, you're inevitably gonna feel enormous pressure as a lawyer to encourage clients to plead guilty. And there's, there's not necessarily anything wrong with a system that has um, plea bargaining and guilty pleas. But what we know is that substantial numbers of people plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. So I'll just give you one example of this. 
uh, with the advent of forensic DNA technology in August of 1989, meaning the first time DNA was used as an investigative tool in a criminal case. Um, there was a study done several years later of the first 250 people exonerated by DNA. And 16 of them had pled guilty. We had people plead guilty who we know is a scientific fact or innocent. Mm. Um, just another statistic, uh, there's been about 3,380 people exonerated uh, since the advent of forensic DNA technology in August of 1989. Not all of them exonerated by DNA, but uh, through the work of the Innocence Project and others, over 3,000 people exonerated, about 24% of them were people who pled guilty to crimes they did not commit. Mm. And so you have to step back and say, in a, a country where we twice in our constitution, twice, it's the, only, it's the only guarantee in there twice, we twice guarantee people the right to a jury trial. Why are people giving up jury trials and pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit? And that should raise questions in our mind. And I think about how, what's, what's prompting people to do that? What's prompting people to have so little confidence that the hearing is, the trial is going to go fairly, that they think they're better off pleading guilty? And I think mm -hmm. one of the answers, but not the only answer, is the inadequacy, the insufficient number of defense lawyers to provide people with a meaningful opportunity to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. oh, that is, so we hear what you're saying, and it, and it really I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm moved by what you're telling us. I mean, when, especially when you consider, I'm, if I understand right, there's over a million uh, Americans who are in, presently incarcerated somewhere at some level of uh, state, federal, county jails, prisons. Oh, many. I mean, more than that. It's like, I think it's around 1.6 million. So we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have something like 4% of the world's population, 4.5%, something like that, and around 19% of the world's prisoners. Our incarceration rate, like if you just go back to the 1970s, our incarceration rate was about 100 people maybe for every um, 100,000, you know, and now, you know, we're up in the like four, five, 600, depending on the state per 100,000. You know, you compare that to Europe where they're incarcerating maybe, you know, 70 or 80 people per 100,000. I mean, we are, uh, we incarcerate an enormous number of people. And there's, there's a discussion to be had about why that is. Why do we, are, why are we having so much more crime than other countries? Because what's interesting is only a small percentage of crime in the United States of serious crime is actually cleared. You know, some estimates put it as low as 10%, only about 50% of murders are solved. And so we actually have an accuracy problem going both directions. We have substantial number of murders not being um, solved and thus people who committed crimes going free. And yet since, I think it's since the year 2000, we've had over a thousand people convicted of murders that they didn't commit. And so, you know, we've got substantial problems going both directions. We've had 194 people since in the modern era of the death penalty since 1973, 194 people sentenced to death who were innocent. Um, and I could go on and on with statistics, but I think you know you get the gist that there's there's some serious problem with accuracy going in both directions, and we should step back and ask ourselves how is that how does that align with God's justice? Because the only authority we have to prosecute crime is delegated authority. And God's justice is true justice, is accurate justice. And that's the only authority he's given us is to judge accurately. And, and, and we all can be upset when we see stories in the news about 
oh, this person who was exonerated after 10, 20, 30 years, we're moved by those stories. But that, but the answer to solving those misfires is being committed to a process, even when we think we know the person did it. Uh, we have to remain committed to a process that surfaces and tests the evidence. Uh, that's how we as fallible humans achieve accuracy. Well, as I've listened to you, the situation you've painted is is enormous and dire. And I can imagine a, a listener to the podcast saying, okay, so what can I as an individual do? What, what would be some of the things that you could recommend uh, for them to help? Perhaps the first thing is we encourage more young students to go into law. Is that is that where we would start, Matt? Well, that I mean, that could certainly be you know something that maybe some of your listeners or maybe some of your listeners have children and would want to encourage them to be part of um, being a prosecutor who executes God's justice justly, uh, or a defense lawyer who ensures that the evidence is surfaces and surfaced and tested. You know, those are both honorable professions, both necessary for achieving accuracy. Uh, but, you know, one thing I just tell the average person who's probably not going to just you know, head off to law school to try to, to save the world is that we all get to vote. And what's unique about criminal justice is that criminal justice is an opportunity to vote on a single issue. And when you vote for your governor, you got to vote on economic policy and environmental policy and welfare and so many other issues. Uh, but when you vote for your local district attorney, and in most jurisdictions, the district attorney is elected, you get to vote based on just one issue. What do they think about criminal justice? And so you have the opportunity to isolate that issue and be, learn about your candidates and go to forums where maybe they're taking questions and ask questions or listen to their answers to other people's questions. And then vote for the candidate who you believe will most align with God's justice, the, the candidate who's most committed to accuracy and the process that necessi that's necessary for achieving accuracy. But the other way in which you get to vote as an American is as a juror. I often say to people that the question mm -hmm. I'm asked most frequently yeah. by fellow believers who know I'm a lawyer is, how do I get out of jury service? <laughs> and you know, the reality is we shouldn't try to get out of jury service. It's an opportunity to vote. Uh, it is, in fact, you participating in government, perhaps in the most direct way that you will ever participate in government. Most people aren't going to hold government office, but they could. But most people in their lifetime will be jurors, certainly if they try, if they if they want to be. Uh, if they don't try to get out of jury service, they will have that opportunity in their life. And I, I take people back to that 3,380 false convictions. And if you back out the 800 and some that were the result of guilty pleas, you have about 2,500 people since 1989 that we know were convicted by juries of crimes they didn't commit. And in the United States, you can only be convicted upon the, the vote of a unanimous jury, which means one juror on any of those 2,500 juries could have stopped those injustices. If one juror had demanded proof that was in fact beyond a reasonable doubt, perhaps held the government to the process. You know, one juror perhaps could have stopped each of those injustices. And so it's, you could potentially as a juror do more justice than you could ever achieve as a voter in an election. And yeah. so I encourage people, don't, don't try to get out of jury service, view it as a stewardship, as an opportunity to be perhaps for that one week or, or two weeks in your life, 
part of carrying out God's justice in this world. Um, perhaps being part of rendering a verdict that someone is guilty and, and providing relief to a victim or some, some sense of relief to a victim, or perhaps rendering a verdict of not guilty and protecting someone from a misfire of justice. Mm. That's good, man. That's really helpful. I've never heard anyone make a case for jury duty, but I think that was convicting and grounded in truth. Uh, yeah, the book I feel I, I did jury duty this year, and I feel so virtuous now. <laughs> <laughs> You've done well, you know, your it's work. Interesting. It's interesting. I, t- I usually when I finish trials, I have an opportunity to talk to the jury. Most of the judges will allow us to do that, and most jurors want to do that, particularly when I was a prosecutor. And I can say nobody ever said they showed up that first day hoping to be on jury, uh, picked for the jury. But I also never talk to anybody afterwards who says they wish they didn't do it. Mm. I think people feel like they learned a lot from the system. And I feel like, and I think most people feel like it gave them a an opportunity to be part of the system. It's it's uniquely American. Again, it was it was in a sense revolutionary. We yeah. it's literally in the bill in the Declaration of Independence that the colonists were upset with King George for taking away the jury trial. We fought a war over this. So let's mm. not give it away just because we're a little busy this week. That's good. The title of the book, again, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal uh, with Matthew Martins as the author. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our listener favorite segment on my bookshelf in which guests and faculty and staff at Southeastern tell us what they're reading right now. We just had the great privilege of interviewing Mr. Matthew Martins on his own book, but we want to ask him before we let him go, Matt Martins, what is on your bookshelf? Well, just recently I read a book by a a faculty member at Oxford University, a man named Tobias Kremer, who is a believer. He wrote a book called The Godless Crusade. And the Godless Crusade tries to help us understand the rise of right-wing populism across the West. And uh, Tobias is actually from Germany. He's living in England. And so he does a survey uh, interviewing political and religious figures across Germany, France, and the U.S. to try to understand the rise of right-wing populism. And he looks at the different success that populism has had in getting traction in those countries and and tries to explain what is that due to. For example, he looks at the fact that in Germany, there's a Christian Democratic Party. And he looks at the degree to which that Christian party has helped slow the rise of right-wing populism. And ultimately, what he argues is that We've experienced a shift away from a a left and a right that is ideologically driven. It's not so much political conservatives and political liberals, but the new divide is really an identitarian divide rather than an ideological divide. It's a really fascinating uh, book by someone who shares our religious commitments, uh, is is trained in the social sciences, um, and has looked at a lot of data and conducted interviews. I just found it fascinating. I've been recommending it to a lot of people recently. Matt, tell us the name of the book again and the author. It's called The Godless Crusade by Tobias Kremer, C-R-E-M-E-R. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, And once again, remind people of your book and where they might get it. 
My book is entitled Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. It is released by Crossway, and you can buy it on Amazon or where else, wherever else you buy your books. Excellent. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.